and welcome back to Smith Cyclopedia, the podcast for the Smiths. Um, I'm your host, Casimir Hurd, and today I have with me one. This is Brady, <laughs> Brady Hogard. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is also probably the best sounding episode so far because today we are in an actual, like, very, very nice uh, studio. Brady runs a uh, a recording studio here in, in Utah called Edison Studios. Edison Recording yeah. Studios? Yeah, Edison, Edison Studios? Recording Studio. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've, I've worked with Brady before. I had a ton of fun. Very, very good stuff. Um, and most of, most of the tracks that you're probably hearing from me, um, they were recorded here at this studio. And so it's, uh, it's a nice return home, I guess, for me. <laughs> um, and the reason why I really wanted to have Brady on today is because we're going to be talking about the Smith's first album, not the debut album, but the one that they recorded before they had to scrap it all and do the debut album. This is the Troy Tate Sessions. But first, before we get into them, let's give a little uh, a little profile for, for Brady. So, Brady, who the heck are you? <laughs> well, um, I, uh, I've been around. Uh, I'm a Utah native, um, and I've been involved in music most of my life in different capacities. But uh, more recently over the past, probably... Uh, I mean, I guess I should say over 15 years I've been involved in audio production, but more professionally involved over the past probably, I don't know, seven or eight years. Um, but yeah, I, like like you said, I run a recording studio here in Pleasant Grove, Utah called Edison Recording Studio. I work with a lot of musicians. Um, primarily, I, I tend to draw more singer-songwriters, you know, people who come with a guitar line or a piano part and vocals and they know it they want to build a song they just don't know what to do and mm -hmm. um and so i i really enjoy working with musicians and helping to construct from the ground up that whole creative process flow and the inspiration that comes from here's the idea and now let's work together to build it into something greater and you know the whole production side it's a lot of fun but uh but i work with a lot of uh musicians that are first time recording artists singer songwriters as well as bands um across a lot of different genres. Um, my sweet spot, I feel, is more in like alternative and rock and pop rock. That's kind of where I tend to feel more comfortable myself and we have a lot of fun, but I've done a lot of other music in country and blues and pop and all over the place. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a little bit about the background. Um, I, I really enjoy working in music and, and meeting so many other musicians in the area. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I feel like every time I see you post uh, on social media or something as as Edison Studio Edison Recording Studios, it's always like a different thing. Like uh, obviously, you know, today we're we're doing a podcast, but then like you had me, and I'm like a very like guitar based yeah. uh, singer songwriter, uh, very electric guitar based singer songwriter, and then like you'll have like uh, like Irish folk groups or like bluegrass or um somebody recorded an audiobook here yeah, once yeah 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 it is all over the place i think i've been pretty fortunate to draw a very diverse audience which is a lot of fun because you know you, having you casmarian has been that, that was that was an incredible experience because I'd never really done anything quite like that style of music, which was really unique. Um, and so there's a lot of pockets of different specialties or genres that, that I have the opportunity to work with, which is great. And it helps me to become more well-rounded in other areas. But uh, aside from music, you're right, um, especially this year, uh, but I've done a number of audiobooks and you know voiceover work for film and things like that. We're going to kick off another voiceover in about two weeks uh, for uh, a gal that does... Uh, she does voiceover for a company uh, and and American Sign Language and anyway some of that. Um, I've actually this year I've had a couple projects in audio restoration as well. So there was a gal that um, her father passed away a couple years ago, but they had these CD discs as well as some mini cassette tapes where he had done discourses for uh, like religious discourses mm -hmm. and. Um, they didn't know, like they were all hissy and fizzy and just, you know, typical tape and, you know, kind of had some issues. And so I was able to bring all of those in and bring in the discs and basically 
just try to restore the audio the best we can to give a much better audio quality, uh, and especially those cassette tapes. We just finished that project, and uh, oh my gosh, they, I mean, they've got a little mini cassette recorder, right? That mm-hmm. uh, they're recording this audio, and maybe it's in like the congregation, and so it's all distant, and it's it's a challenge, right? Yeah. To try and take that and get all the tape hiss out, and then take that really kind of brittle audio from a very far off sound source and you know make it sound better so anyway very diverse opportunities it's been a lot of fun this year especially yeah Yeah. i'm i'm a little envious uh because yeah it just seems like it is a lot of hard work but it is a lot of fun too yeah yeah um and then brady how how do you know like the smiths what was your introduction to the band you know what um, I don't know why I'm sitting here uh, because, uh, no, I I like the Smiths. Um, however, I can't say that growing up, they weren't really an influence for me. I didn't really know who they were, mm-hmm. right? And they were, they were a big name, you know, in the 80s. Um, and I can't say that uh, I really knew too much about them growing up. But, um, you know, over the years, I definitely know the sound, right? The Smith sound, and, and you, you hear Morrissey's voice, and you know who it is. Mm-hmm. And, and even still today, I could say that. But I can't really say that they've been on, like, my playlists in the past, right? There's a, there's a handful of their more popular songs that I absolutely would know who they are. And if I heard a non-popular song or, or whatnot, I'd, I'd, I'd be able to make that connection. But um, I wish I could say that I was a diehard fan and, and I followed them as well as you did. But um, I, you know, they're, uh, they're a band that I've known about for a number of years, but definitely not kind of in my core vein of music that I listen to. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's why I'm here is, you know, yeah. to convert you. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, but while while I was recording here some of my stuff, I remember just talking endlessly about like what our different influences were, and I found like a really a really neat like um, merging of the two uh, the other week when I was just uh, zooming around the internet and whatever, and I found like this old acoustic cover that Coheed and Cambria did of. Uh, of a Smith song called A Rush and a Push and the Land is Ours. Oh, really? Uh, and it was very interesting because they are very different styles. And even like that song is a little different from the Smith's normal style where it's like a very piano-based mm. uh, song. But Coheed and Cambria totally made it their own. I Wow. I, I was blown away. It, it was a really good just like acoustic cover. It was great. That is awesome. Yeah, Coheed and Cambria, they're very talented. See, that that falls more in line with the genres that I would typically grow up with and listen to. But uh, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. That sounds pretty wild. Yeah. And of course, I mean, we both connect over the format. Oh, love, oh yeah. Love the format's first album. Yep. yep. Um, speaking of first albums, that's what we're here to talk today about. Um, so why don't, why don't we get into it? All right. So let's give a little introduction to... What what the heck were you even talking about? So, after the Smiths' first single, Hand in Glove, comes out, their record label, Rough Trade, says, oh, we actually, we love this. We need you to record an album with us. And Morrissey and Johnny Marr, they're very excited. They've played, uh, they've been playing for probably about a year now at this point. And they've got all of these songs, like, ready to go and so um rough trade and the smiths uh let's see they ask uh the former teardrop explodes guitarist troy tate to come in and to produce the album for them uh teardrop explodes were like a little bit before the smiths like a couple years but by this point, like they were established and they were a well-respected name. Troy Tate uh, had produced like a couple other things. He did his own. Uh, he was doing his own music as well, and so it made sense that you have like this uh, indie star produce like the album, the debut album for these upcoming indie stars. But it's not quite there. Like like I said, they had been playing for probably a year at this point. And that was great. And, like, the songs are all fantastic. But maybe they weren't, like, as tight as they could be. And Troy Tate is still a relatively 
inexperienced uh, producer. Like, he hasn't done a crazy ton of stuff. And so... Well, and, and I'm curious about that. What What is your opinion there? Uh, because we're talking about two very different, you know, you know, what ifs uh, as far as, you know, is it... Is it that maybe he was early in his career as far as a producer or or the quality of that initial, you know, album that's coming out? Was it more it's the band's first album and so maybe they weren't as tight? I mean, oh, and it's probably a combination of both. But really, yeah. what does your gut tell you? Like, where do you think that lies? I think I, I really think it is a little <laughs> bit in both of their courts. Like, I think Troy Tate probably I don't think he was the right person uh, for the job because I don't think that like some of these demos or not demos I don't think some of these recorded tracks even if they are just like you know the mixes without like being mastered and whatever I don't think they sound better than like just demos mm-hmm. that they could have made um, but also at the same time and we'll get more into this later, like the influence of John Porter as a producer for the Smith's first album is immense. Like what he teaches Johnny Marr to do in the studio absolutely uh, like changes the way that the Smiths sound on record from that mm-hmm. point forward. And just to clarify, John Porter was the new producer that came in after after they initially cut the full album. Yeah. With Troy Tate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, meanwhile, while they're making this album, Morrissey and Johnny Marr are going around. They're telling everyone, it's the best thing you've ever heard. You've never heard anything like it. It is a masterpiece for sure. By the time they get the full album back, they're all a little disappointed with it. Hmm. And uh, Rough Trade head uh, Jeff Travis essentially is like what do i what do i do with this like i believe in this group so much and their first single sounds amazing but this isn't quite right and the band isn't satisfied either so he takes it to uh to john porter just to get like his professional opinion like john listen to this what do we do to fix this and what john porter tells him is it will cost you less money to just re-record the entire thing than to try to fix it uh, in the current state it's in. Yeah, yeah. And that's what they end up doing. Now, granted, there's a little bit of politicking, I think, here, because John Porter immediately suggests himself to uh, to do the job, mm-hmm. which, Naturally. you know, you could say, like... <laughs> You could say, like, oh, well, you know, it just makes sense. You know, he's a producer. He's worked with Roxy Music, um, who are a big influence on the Smiths. But it's also, like, the Smiths are very obviously, like, a great group. They're incredibly talked about uh, in the scene at the time. It would make sense to want to attach yourself to them. Um, Oh, yeah. And so Troy Tate hears the news that none of this is going to get released. And he's just devastated. I think from this point forward, he just withdraws from producing altogether. Oh, wow. Just loses confidence in himself. But, and from there, you know, the Smiths re-record their album. In the meantime, they also write This Charming Man. It becomes a big hit. Um... But that's all in the future. What the Troy Tate tapes leave us with is essentially just like a recorded time capsule of the first year of this band. Like things aren't quite as tight. Uh, There's still a little hiccups. Morrissey's voice isn't quite there yet. And Johnny Marr is still playing around with like uh, some things on his guitar that work, don't work, etc., etc., it's a really, really interesting, just small little look at, at everything that's going on. Oh, yeah. Um, and so before I asked you to, or before um, before we recorded this, we listened to some of the, uh, some of the tapes uh, on our own. So I want to ask you, Brady. Yeah. The, 
the million pound question or whatever. How do you fix this? How do you fix this album? Or is it actually just cheaper to uh, to re-record it to go like, yeah, no, this just needs to be redone compared to like what the debut album ended up being? Yeah, so you know, I did have the the chance to listen, and, and this is news to me, right? I mean, like I said before, I I love the Smiths. I can't say that I'm a fanboy. You know, it's not somebody uh-huh. I followed for a long time. And so, uh, before you approached me about this episode, honestly, I'd never heard of Troy Date. I didn't know anything about this, and so it was really interesting in preparing for this to do a little bit of research. And um, and I did have the chance to go back and listen to the original tapes, um, and you know, compare those against you know what do we know as the Smiths, you know, because of the, the full commercial releases. And um, overall, it's actually very interesting. And I was confused <laughs> because um, listening to the tracks, there, there was always a little bit of doubt in my mind, right? Because I'm thinking, okay, it's been a long time. I mean, we're talking almost 40 years ago mm-hmm. uh, since yeah. these recorder. Maybe, I guess it has been 40 years no, ago. Oh, yeah. 40, right? Yeah. Um, 83. In 83, yeah. And um, it's interesting because as I listen to them, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, are these, we're talking about so many years that has there been some audio degradation from, you know, somebody had the originals and it's been passed and replicated and replicated and, you know, mm-hmm. it's degrading in quality over time? Or is this like what it is? And what I mean by that is you listen from track to track um, of those original recordings and, um, there's consistency in certain ways, but in other ways, it's very inconsistent. Um, the quality of the sound and, you know, some tracks, we'll get into this more, but some tracks sound like, you know, you had a band playing in a room and there was a single microphone that you just threw up to record the sound. And then other tracks are actually fairly well done um, and it's just a whole different experience. But it's, I think the key word is that experience. As I listen through to the individual tracks, um, it was there wasn't consistency. Like it was very different from track to track in certain ways. And again, we'll get into Mm -hmm. this, but um, it caused me to pause and wonder like, am I listening to the right thing? Because maybe (laughs) I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I've got the wrong information. Maybe these were like pre demos or something that tracked and, and not nothing against Troy Tate. I don't know Troy Tate. I don't know his history and his experience, but um, I would, I would guess that, you know, he's probably figuring things out on his end as well. And he's got this very talented group in front of him and, it's new for everyone, right? They're yeah. they're excited. The emotions are high, and um, they're just eager to get all of these great songs that they've written out. And I think it's it's difficult to capture some of that sometimes. But um, but yeah, very interesting uh, mm-hmm. to to see, or I guess listen back to those and hear the differences, the sonic differences between all the different tracks. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like. I don't know. One thing that I've always really, really prized and loved about the Smiths is that there is such variety. But like you said, with these, there's very little consistency in the variety in these uh, in these tracks. Like uh, the guitar tones don't sound like adjacent to to each other. They kind of like one will be very, very direct and then one will be like an awkward amount of like reverb or like um I think in Accept Yourself in uh in these tapes, they just have like this very sort of rock and roll piano that's mm. in the middle of it, but it just doesn't it doesn't fit at all. Um Well and I, I want to interject here for a minute and talk a little bit about albums in general because it, at least in my experience, right? I listened to a lot of music growing up and um you know, I had my favorite artists and bands that, you know, over the years, they would put out multiple albums and I would pick up their new albums immediately and listen. And generally, now this is not always the case, but when we talk about consistency, generally, a an artist puts out an album and there's consistency, right? The guitar tones are similar and the vocal styles and the mixing and the masters and all of that is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And then they put out their next album. And we've all had that experience where it's like, oh man, their sound changed, right? Yeah. Guitar tones are different. It's not what I remember. And I like that first album. I love their debut album, but their <laughs> second album, it wasn't nearly as good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of that feeling, but within an album itself, there's cohesiveness and there's this consistency with, with tones because of it's generally it's how it's mixed. And I have no idea 
with the Smiths, but it almost makes you wonder. You know, they spent probably multiple days or even weeks recording all these albums, or excuse me, all these songs. And uh, was there consistency in, did we put the same microphones up in front of the same guitar cabinet each time, or was it so different that now you're just capturing things so differently? It's hard to have that that kind of melding consistency between all the all the songs. So, And maybe that's what they're going for, right? Who knows, right? Maybe Troy Tate saying, hey, this is how I want to do it. And the band is saying, ah, we want to do it different. Let's try this song this way and let's do a different song another way. It's kind of the producer's job to step in and say, look, we need it to sound consistent and this is how we're going to make that happen. So I, I don't know. I don't know where it falls apart and maybe that's what they wanted. Who knows? Yeah, I, I think like part of it and Johnny Marr talks about it in um, in his book is they were also very, very fledgling musicians, but also there was a massive heat wave that was going through London at the time. So they were all just kind of bogged down and like the space that they were recording in wasn't very well insulated. And so their guitars were constantly going out of tune. Mm. It was just taking forever to actually record this thing. And even though it was, you know, like five, six guys just hanging out and making music, it was still... Uh, somewhat a somewhat a strenuous process. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that, I mean, I'm sure that did take its toll on the actual recordings. Oh yeah. Um, huh. They say we got to get through this. Yeah. Just do it. Just get your take done. We got to go. It's too hot. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Um. But. Yeah, I think a lot of it just comes down to like, it's very. Yeah, they're they're all still very young, very inexperienced. Um, and Troy Tate was, I mean, he was a guitarist first and foremost, and like had had only a few experiences with like actually producing. Hmm. Um, and so him and Johnny were just having like a great a great grand time. And towards the end, all of the other members uh, of the Smiths were a little concerned that Troy Tate was just kind of there for Johnny. And like, just kind of wanted to be around that other guitar player, and so camps started to form, which happens over and over and over in the Smiths' career. Uh, they're, they're a little jealous, uh, a little jealous group. <laughs> but um, I really don't even know where I'm going with this. It's just like there's there's a lot of things that plagued this session, uh, but there is also a lot of things that are really, really, really interesting about this session, like. Um, I don't know. I, I I know that you've got your notes there, but certain songs I would say are better than like what came out as like the official track or whatever. Like um, I believe it's uh, "Pretty Girls Make Graves" has this like wonderful, wonderful cello uh, that they've got going on in the background. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah. Or like "Reel Around the Fountain," I think is just a great, great recording. Uh, Brady, what what were some of like the standout moments to you? What did you really enjoy? Yeah, you know, there there's definitely some differences. Um, and and when you listen back, I mean, there's obviously there's the similarities, right? I mean, you've recognized the song, whether it came from from Troy Tate or what we what we hear is the commercially released song. Um, there's a lot of similarities as well, but uh, but generally speaking, um, when you listen back. I, let me let me just talk from like a high level, at least from what I was hearing as I compare them side by side from song to song. Um, it really felt like the commercially released. Now, l- let me let me take one step back here. First of all, <laughs> I don't know, like I don't know which camp I fall in because when you go and if you if you look this up online and do a Google search about Troy Tate, there are so many opinions out there and you've got those diehard people saying man his versions were so much better Troy Tate was the man they sound better it's such such a better quality or whatever and other people say no it just sounds unmixed it doesn't sound you know the the quality of what it should be and so you you see it all over the place and everywhere in between right mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that also say I like these better from from Troy Tate and I like these better from from John right but it when I was listening back what I was hearing is there's actually uh the Troy Tate versions generally, and it varies from song to song, but generally they're kind of more of a raw, there's a little more distortion in mm-hmm. the songs. Um, 
and uh, compared to you know the the other the the, the later versions were kind of prettier. Um, mm-hmm. They almost seem simpler in certain ways, but I think what it really came down to is just the balance. Um, there, it wasn't as distorted. Um, what what I tended to hear is the the more the later versions that came out. Uh, if you listen to the sound spectrum, they're wider. It sounds so much wider and like the the just lush the mm-hmm. reverb on the vocals in certain songs and especially the guitars and the tones and that um, it was just a much wider, clearer, open soundscape. And when I would go back to listen to the same versions through through Troy Tate, um, they were good in their own way because they've they're just different. Right? They've mm-hmm. got more distortion, but if you listen, a lot of the tones are more kind of narrow focused. Like it, it doesn't sound as wide. It's not as much of a stereo image. Um, and one way is not right and wrong. Um, but it's, there was that kind of consistency that I kept hearing is, man, the, the, the later versions are just wider open and, and clearer in certain ways that you just didn't get with a lot of the Troy Tate stuff. Um, that was more, you know, kind of the high level without getting into certain songs. Um, also, actually, just like you mentioned, if you go back and listen to some of the Troy Tate stuff, like the cello mm-hmm. uh, in one of the songs, I think one of the other songs, I can't remember which it is off the top of my head right now. I'll have to go back through notes more. But um, there was like piano parts or there were even guitar parts that I was hearing in Troy Tate's versions that was like, oh, I don't hear those. And maybe they're just buried more in the later versions, but it was interesting um, to hear that. Um, yeah, so Troy Tate's versions in certain ways, I think they were more intricate in, in ways, but that's not always, always, not always a good thing. You know, if it's more intricate, there's just more busier, um, Mm -hmm. it starts to muddy things in other ways, um, if you're not careful, but, um, they did feel thicker. Like if you think about like how hefty (laughs) the Troy Tate versions were, like the low end, not always, but a lot of times the bass and the kick drum, it was just thick. It was it was very very present, and that's not always a good thing. But um, they felt heavier and um, I guess more punchy in some ways as well. Uh, whereas the later releases, when you think of like jingle rock, jingle rock, I don't know what you consider the Smiths exactly, but like jingle rock or alternative or whatever. Yeah, uh, that word jangle is just kind of their guitars were definitely brighter, had a mm-hmm. lot more reverb usually in a lot of the songs in the later versions. And um, I guess just clearer I, is, is really how I would describe it is they were clear. You listen to it and everything is balanced and it sits into that soundscape. It's clear and you're not trying to fight to hear all the instruments and what's going on because it just all melds together really nicely. Again, I don't know that I sit in either camp necessarily. I wouldn't feel qualified to, to say which I prefer best because, you know, Depending on the song, I like different elements of different songs yeah. from both versions. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, uh, I was just trying to look through some of my uh, some of my resources here. Uh, but what you said about like, uh, it's a little bit more like raw and it's a little bit punchier and like it has more I don't know oomph, weight to mm-hmm. it. Uh, I remember that like when they first go into the studio, and really I feel like a lot of bands do this. They just want to capture the live sound, you know, and that's absolutely what like uh, the Smiths were. Is they were a powerhouse live. They mm. they punched you, um, and then when John Porter later on came in, like kind of taught Johnny Marr how to produce, things kind of changed to where they became a very very powerful, raw, energetic live band and a very very pretty, uh, intricate and like very planned uh recording band yeah and so you have those kind of two smiths elements and so maybe part of the thing is is we just like what we see today as like you know this is what the smiths sound like on record it doesn't quite align with what troy tate had because he was trying to capture the live band you know um that's pretty common isn't it yeah i mean i feel like bands (laughs) they kind of paint themselves into a corner in a lot of ways because you get to the studio and yeah you can play live all together but then you go back in for 
what they call overdubs Mm -hmm. where, you know, now that you're listening to what's been recorded you add a little bit here and then you record something else over there that typically isn't in the full live band. And what you find is now in order to play that live, you've got to have 20 members of your band because there's so many parts that it's just not possible. Um, One, as you were describing that one song that comes to mind, it's actually my favorite songs by the Smiths is not from this album actually, but um, how soon is now Mm -hmm. is the one that, if, if I were to remember one um, without even realizing it, you know, in, in, in the past, I I hear that song in my head and, you know, everybody loves you. And like, uh, there's just like, that's one that um, when I was doing some research, um, I read, I don't know, you, you probably know more about this than I would, but I read that it was one of the songs that they rarely played live. There were only a handful of times they actually played it live because... They got into the studio, and the way that they produced it, it was, I mean, it wasn't feasible. It just wasn't really possible to play it that same way live because of all the elements that were added in. Yeah, and I so, mean, you stick four Fender Twin reverbs around one microphone, and then you pause every time you get off track. That that doesn't really work live. Yeah. Um, there are a couple instances of them performing it live with uh, their second guitarist for one of their tours, uh, okay. Craig Gannon that just sound absolutely amazing. And it's like, how did you, number one, like it's amazing that you pulled this off in the studio. How did you pull it off in a live, Live. in in a live setting? Um, But uh, no, I I was just going to say, it kind of resonates what you were saying though, is I think um, that's interesting. I'd never really thought about that, but uh, Troy Tate, you know, maybe he was a guitarist, like you said, and maybe that's where his, we all work around our experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's really hard for us to do something that we've never done before because it could go poorly, it could go well. But I, I think that actually resonates. What you said is maybe Troy Tate, you know, he's a guitarist, so he's thinking live and how do we run this live and get the best possible sound, which there is energy and power there. Um, whereas, you know, John had come in and said, I've done this before and I know how to... I know what it's like, right, to to produce bands, and yeah. and there's the there's the studio band, and then there's the live band, and they're not always the same. Yeah, he would. <laughs> this isn't true, but like in my mind, he's having uh, he's having Johnny Marr and Morrissey come in with like their uh, their like twelve inch Roxy Roxy Music singles, and he's like pointing to their name or pointing to his name on it, like, all right, you trust me now, like, right? You you've not only. Have you heard my credentials? You grew up with my credentials. Uh-huh. You love my credentials. Um, but yeah, so Troy Tate, uh, yeah. Like I said, just a very interesting time capsule. Um, yeah. Now that I think about it, it uh, it's a little bit like uh, the Pixies' first two albums. Like, everybody goes back and forth between which one they like more, whether it's like mm. the more like kind of gnarly, like, uh teeth teeth bearing like surfer rosa or the more polished even though it's still the pixies do little like people go back and forth all the time which one is better which one is better um and i still go back and forth all the time i think yeah. right now i'm surfer rosa but who knows nice um but let's see i i want to hear more about like some of the things you picked up in the individual tracks yeah yeah, I think that'd be helpful, right? And, and I, you know, I mean, you probably have these resources available, but I think if anyone's listening that hasn't heard the Troy Tate, or you don't know who Troy Tate is, do a little research, because it's it's actually really interesting, that whole story. And um, on YouTube, you can find, you know, the whole album, the Troy Tate album, and it's uh, that's the resource that you shared with me, Casimir. And it's, it's interesting, definitely take it and just listen to back to back between the uh, Troy Tate version and the original and, and get your own opinion there. Yeah, and like... Uh, I think we, we were talking about this right before, but, like, there are multiple versions on there, and part of that, I think, is because they were just trying to, like, go through, like, different mixes, like, what makes this work? Um, and so it's really interesting to hear, like, this is the Smiths, like, kind of putting their live sound and then, like, trying to fill it out and, like, uh, a step-by-step process almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right, what, what have you got, Brady? Well, let's talk about uh, Reel Around the Fountain. Right. Um, In the Troy Tate version, as I was listening to it, uh, something that was very pronounced was the kick drum. It was a really heavy, heavy kick drum that just came through. It was was too much. Um, And then everything overall, 
I like to use the term washy reverb mm-hmm. and, and reverb for anyone that doesn't know it's it's kind of that echo right the the that lush kind of echo that comes with the guitars or the vocals or whatever that sounds like you know you can make it sound like you're in a room or you can make it sound like you're in a stadium and it's that long tail echo that you hear yeah um, it's the bath it's the singing in the bathroom you know yeah it's the singing in the bathroom yeah exactly um and so that song i mean it was i call it washing reverb on everything it was just kind of really washed out um it was kind of a thick sounding song but um and, and the vocals are very very heavy in the reverb and and you'll hear that in different songs. You know, some of their songs, I mean, even the, the later versions were very, uh, lots of reverb. But um, comparing that to the later release, uh, the vocals were much more present. They were kind of more forward, up, louder in your face, and you can, you can hear them better. Uh, the sound overall was a little more focused. Uh, the drums weren't as washy. Uh, the mm-hmm. drums were a little bit tighter and, and less of that reverb sound and... Um, uh, just I, I don't know. Overall, you listen to it, and I, I keep saying this, but there's the clarity. Like you can just hear things a little bit better, and it just sounds simpler than maybe the Troy Tate version. And I don't know. Somebody might hate me for for saying <laughs> it, right? Like I'm not against Troy Tate's versions at all. He did some great things, but that was something I noticed immediately with "Real Around the Fountain." Mm-hmm. So, what what's one of your favorites, uh, or, or one that you feel were some bigger difference? I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about one of them, and maybe we'll just go back and forth here. Yeah. Um... All right, so I, I mentioned before I love Pretty Girls Make Graves. I love that version. Um, the Troy Tate version. Yeah, it eventually yeah. did get released because uh, the session musician that they brought in um, to play the cello. Um, let me look at her name real fast. Uh, Audrey Riley. She was basically promised like, "Hey, you need to come into this session. You're going to have a great time." Jeff Travis is like, really like, it will be good. And then finding out it was released, she was kind of pissed. And so he was like, all right, all right, all right. I will make sure this version gets out here. And so it became a B-side to, um, uh, let's see. Yeah. I started something I couldn't finish, like, posthumously for the for the Smiths. Hmm. Um, but then I also really like... Uh, Wait, before you go on, though. Yes. On Pretty Girls Make Graves, um, I actually agree with you there. The the strings, the cello, um, mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that. And it's not in the later version, right? No. Because I didn't hear it, and I picked it out, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that in any of their music. Do they have other songs that have strings? Uh, Maybe later. Yeah, so there's but, a couple ones where it's just like Johnny Marr playing synth strings, but then there's okay. also an instrumental track that they have called Oscillate Wildly, where Andy Rourke, the the bassist for the group, he goes out and he finds the cello and brings it back to the studio and he kind of just adds a little cello bit to it. Oh, and he just does it? Yeah, and wow. you don't really find it anywhere else. Uh, a lot of other places in uh, in the Smith's career. Yeah. Uh, but just a cool little aside, I guess. Hey guys, just Kaz Budding in here for a couple quick seconds. So I mentioned that Andy Rourke... Uh, played cello on Oscillate Wildly and probably didn't much after that. This isn't entirely true. Uh, Andy Rourke also played cello on Shakespeare's Sister. However, it is very faint in the mix. Um, Morrissey at this time said that he thought it would be a good idea if the Smiths included more orchestral elements, and so Andy Rourke went out, found a cello, recorded a cello bit for Shakespeare's Sister, and like I said, buried very, uh, very faintly in uh, the mix of that song. And then they also recorded it for Oscillate Wildly. It's my, I don't know if I could substantiate this, but I also believe that he does on Rubber Ring. But I would need to, uh, need to do a little bit more research uh, and figure that out. I can't find any sources uh, saying who the cello part is. Um, but there is definitely a cello part on that track. Um, as well, addressing Johnny Marr and his sort of strings. Um, so apparently one thing that him and John Porter would do in the studio, in addition uh, to using a synthesizer, which they were only able to do on very rare occasions, is they would record Johnny playing a single guitar note and then elongate it so that it had the same feeling as a string, and then they would blend that in very nicely into the mix. All right, back to the show. Yeah, well, and and that song, I actually, I think if I'm looking through my notes, I think I had more notes on that song than the others. Um, this could have been just me. 
and I'll just tell you a couple of my kind of bullet points for Pretty Girls Make Graves. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Troy Tate version, tell me if I'm wrong here, but what I'm hearing is the rhythm guitar part when it comes in and throughout, it sounds like it's played through an electric guitar, whereas the later release is an acoustic guitar. And I could be wrong here, um, but it's definitely more stripped back in the later version. And that's what I was hearing. Um, also, the tempo. There is a tempo change there. Yeah. Um, the Troy Tate version, I actually felt like it was too slow. And this is a terrible comparison, but it kind of felt like a polka. Like, <laughs> like it was kind of driving, but almost too slow. And then the later release, um, I felt like they got the tempo right. Like mm-hmm. it, it needed to be a little bit faster, in my humble opinion. Um, but um, I loved how both versions... Um, who who did you say? Did you say who the female was? Uh, there's a female yes. that says, "Oh, really?" Uh, Audrey Riley. Audrey Riley. Um, you actually hear that in both versions, which um, I think I had heard it in the Troy. No, I heard it in the later version first. Oh, oh, hold on, the female vocalist. Yeah. Oh no, she's sorry. a cellist. You said right? Yes. Audrey, Audrey Riley, Riley is the cellist. cellist. The, Troy uh, Tate the female vocalist. I actually don't know if we have. Don't it. know, but yeah, I was surprised to hear that in both versions as well. It was. Um, Butting back in here, it's Annalisa Jablonska, uh, Morrissey's quote unquote ex girlfriend. Um, yeah. But no, that was that was really interesting. And then um, something that I actually really really liked that I didn't expect uh, was on the later version. If you listen to the outro on both of the songs, they're similar, but in the Troy Tate version, the drums continue to play through the outro. It's I don't even know how long it is, it's like a minute, minute and a half, or maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, but the drums continue to play. If you listen to the later version, it drops, and it's just the acoustic guitar, and I, I call it the jangle guitar, right? But like uh-huh. you, you hear the the the, uh, the electric guitar playing too. But it's actually really, if, if you don't mind me saying the word pretty on your podcast, like it's actually really pretty. <laughs> this is a Smith the podcast. Groove. We love pretty. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's actually very different. So you listen to those; it's a different feeling that you get because the first, even though they're playing the same music. The, the earlier version with Troy Tate has the drums, and the later version, they drop the drums. And I actually prefer that. I think it sounds... It just changes the song and the feeling into, like, a more, I don't know, like, like melodic outro as it, it, it wraps up the songs. Anyway, I really like that. It was... I, I can't say that I knew this song very well before I did this comparison, but it was... It, I had the most notes on this one. It's very different. It, it, yeah. Because admittedly, like, this is a song that is probably one of my more skippable ones when I'm going through the debut album. But mm-hmm. this one, I'm like, no, this one is so, ah, it's so nice. But I do, I do love that, like, the stripped back ending of the, uh, of the debut version. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, what and else then, we got? uh, what difference does it make? Uh, I think... What difference does it make really kind of shines through in the Troy Tate versions because um, it's a much more like kind of bumbly, like very Tom heavy uh, song on the drums, which when they went to record like the album with John Porter, John Porter was not about that. He was like, no, we are going to have a very like on the beat. We are going to have Mike Joyce play the drums exactly as he should. Um, whereas this feels like a little bit more like it kind of has like this r- like rhythm and sway to it. Whereas the other one is very like the debut, ver- the later version. Yeah. Whereas yeah. this one is more kind of like, in, yeah, I don't know. In my notes, I, I think we're on the same page. Cause in my notes, um, I actually just wrote for the Troy Tate, the early version, um, I wrote rock version <laughs> and the other version was like the pop version. Yeah. It was, um, it wasn't as driving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and then, yeah, I, I think most of these, like the performances really shine through, like there's not very much, I have to say like performance wise yeah. where it's like this does or doesn't work. There's a couple like guitar lines, which I think or like guitar overdubs, which I think, don't work as well just because of like they don't quite fit in the mix and i think that's kind of the case with uh the end of pretty girls my graves or like the <sighs> it's all it almost sounds like a distorted harmonica on hand and glove like where the other versions shine through very clear this one kind of just feels 
odd and kind of muddy. The performances aren't quite as great there where like the single feels so immediate and Morrissey's vocal is so like just absolutely like desperate and pleading and commanding. This one kind of feels a little phoned in. You lose the feeling. Yeah. Later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you've got everything now. I think this is actually a big problem that I have with uh, a lot of the Troy Tate stuff that I think is very apparent on you've got everything now is the drums are so loud and the cymbals are so like piercing and thin and they just sound very, very sharp and it makes the listening experience very hard for me to endure. Um, I don't know if like that was something that, uh, something that you had written down, but just the cymbals, they drive me a little insane, mm. you know? I didn't have that actually from the drums, but this was, this is, I referenced this earlier, but this was the one song where I wrote down, uh, sounds like they captured a live performance on one microphone. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, it's more muffled um, from the early version, the Troy Tate version, uh, from from what I was listening to. Uh, it has a completely different sound. Uh, it just, it sounds so muffled and it's almost like you're at a party and you're in the living room and the band's on the back patio and you're hearing kind of that music kind of flow in. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it wasn't, it was just, kind of there but it's like where how did how did they track this because it just sounds like everything's just kind of muffled together in some way but uh, it just lacks the power and, and the later version um it's definitely more balanced um uh, and also i i did find it was interesting i think it was on the later version um the drums they had some form of a reverb it's like a slap reverb or something on those that was mm-hmm. i hadn't heard that in some of the other songs or at least it wasn't as pronounced um, and I don't know if I liked it as much, to be honest. But how how would you define um, uh, a slap reverb? Slap reverb's like uh, if you go into an alley and you look at a big brick, tall building, brick wall, and you shout at it, and you hear this like, "Hey, hey, 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 Casimir, Casimir," you know, yeah. like it's that really quick reflection, that really quick, um, um, like like bounce, like back, bounce of, back of the of the, 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 the sound you hear, but very very quick. Yeah, and and that's. Again, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I was hearing on the later version on the drums. And it was kind of, I mean, mix engineers do that, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. unusual, but it's also, it just it just didn't sound as good to me as some of the other songs. Uh, but uh, but that's on the live, or on the, the later version. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that was probably one of the songs. I don't know, there were a few kind of like that that felt very muffled to me. And that was one of them that I had most notes on. Yeah. Yeah, um, Miserable Lie was another one that I felt um, the Troy Tate version, it was great, but it was definitely dirtier, like noisier, as yeah. far as like, you could tell there's more distortion on the uh, guitars where, I, I write this almost on every song, but the later versions, it's just like the guitars are more janglier, they're cleaner, and you know, they have distortion, there's parts where they have more and more distortion on, you know, chorus lines and things, but um, that was one that I felt was, was definitely more... Uh, kind of rock, rock centric. It was just a little bit more uh, distortion throughout. Yeah. And um, also something that was interesting with the Troy Tate version on "Miserable Lie" is uh, again maybe it's just me, but the vocals didn't sound centered. This doesn't. This is not like a hard fast rule in mm-hmm. audio production and, and when you're recording music. But normally the lead vocals are right up the center. Mm-hmm. Um, on that version, I think it was more to the right. Maybe it felt like the vocals were leaning off towards the right and you don't notice that as much unless you have headphones and things on but it sounded like they were kind of pushed to the side a little bit and it was throwing me off because uh, that's not normal um, not to say that it's wrong it just and, and again maybe it was just me uh, but that was interesting um, the the later version is definitely a thicker uh, the song itself just felt thicker all around and, and just kind of clearer um, and what is that note? Oh, uh, the vocals on this one had pretty heavy, and they do this on a couple songs, but when we think of reverb, like that kind of echo, like you, like you said earlier, it's like when you're singing in the bathroom and the sound of, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different types of reverb. And um, there's like a slap delay or a slap 
what we were talking about before. Um, there's a room reverb. So you think of yourself in a small room as opposed to think of yourself in like a concert hall. And if you yell in that concert hall, how it rings out longer and then a bathroom or something like that is different. But um, room reverb is kind of a shorter reverb time um, where it, they call it decay, right? It decays faster. But um, his vocals on a number of songs are like this, but this one was where I really noticed it on the later version. Um, he had a lot of room reverb, so kind of short reverb times. Not not like as short as like the slap delay and things like that, but um, but I, I, it was more pronounced in Miserable Life. So it was interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. Miserable Life isn't necessarily one of my, one of my absolute favorites, um, either recordings, mm-hmm. <laughs> but. What is your favorite song on this album? On the Troy Tate album? Ooh. Troy um, Tate or, you know, the later release. I'm, I'm just curious. What one? Um, what is your favorite? And why? And why? <laughs> um, I love a lot of the, um, I don't know, I guess, slower ones on oh, okay. uh, on this one uh, versus the slower ones on, like, the debut. So, like, Pretty Girls Make Graves. I already talked about that one. I love that one. Uh, Suffer Little Children has, like, this wonderful piano coda at the end, and, like, it feels uh, just darker and dirtier, almost. Hmm. Um, whereas the other one, it does feel, like, very ghostly, but whereas it almost feels more like the other one is as if a ghost passes through you, this one is as if you are being possessed. Hmm. Um, okay. And then Hand That Rocks the Cradle, um, I mean, it's what they were going to name the album. So, of course, it's what, uh, it, it's probably the one that they put a lot of effort into. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, like, on the debut album, I absolutely love, uh, I absolutely love, like, the faster tracks. Like, I love, uh, actually, I mean, Rail Around the Fountain might be my favorite, which is kind of slower from hmm. the, from the debut. Um, and then like uh still ill oh i love still ill actually absolutely great i don't even know if they i did they didn't record still ill for this one um but yeah still ill is definitely my favorite from uh from the later album okay um yeah just just great 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 stuff Um, that's awesome yeah but then like let's see I'm just looking over, seeing if like I have anything else to say on the Troy Tate version, because we should probably be wrapping, yeah, uh, yeah. wrapping the I, Troy Tate stuff up. As you're looking at that, I mean, honestly, it, it wasn't it wasn't that, from my opinion, I don't think Troy Tate did anything wrong, no. right? Because there's a lot of people out there that listen even today, and they say, "Man, I prefer his songs," and it may not always be because they're better in one way or another. I think we all have different preferences, right? And listening, I mean, somebody may be listening and I mean, think of Troy Tate, right? Like they're a guitarist. So they're actually listening to the guitars more heavily than someone else who listens to the vocals. And and they say, well, I like this one because the vocals are better. Well, I like this one because the guitars are better or whatever. And so I I don't know that there's one that's right or wrong, but um, it's a fun practice to go through to, to hear the differences. And I don't know if this happens often with other groups i mean the fact that you you spend the time and the 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 expense of recording a whole album and then you just scrap it mm-hmm. like this is a treasure you said it was like a time capsule earlier it's a treasure because we have it we have both and yeah. you can't compare it and i don't i don't know that this happens very often no it, <laughs> but it's it really it's pretty doesn't. cool to have this experience to be able to compare and contrast and make a whole podcast episode about the differences <laughs> of you know what a lot of people probably never realized or heard of of these older tracks that were never officially released yeah no absolutely and like you do get like the occasional troy tate track that like comes out as a part of some compilation or as a b-side or something Mm -hmm. but for the most part these are just a really cool thing to listen to like if you've listened to all of the smith's albums and you're kind of hungry for more there is a whole batch of versions that you just might not have heard before and they're very much worth uh worth your while to listen to yeah um i think we'll wrap up this uh this topic with uh with something that simon goddard says in his uh in his 
song biography, I guess, of the Smiths, uh, Songs That Saved Your Life. Speaking to the enemy about the album, uh, Troy Tate's album, about the album's fate the following year, Tate would confess disappointment is not strong enough a word. On his part, Morrissey proffered something of a belated olive branch when asked to stand in as guests as a guest singles reviewer for Melody Maker magazine in August 1984, allowing him the chance to praise Tate's own Thomas, 45, as the best record he had ever appeared on. This should be a sizable hit should justice prevail. However, we know that it very rarely does. Classic Morrissey, you know? Uh... But yeah, if you haven't listened to the Troy Tate, uh, Troy Tate sessions, I'll make sure to link them in uh, in the about or bio or whatever you want to call them in the show notes. Um, and you should go listen to them right away. But in the meantime, we've got a couple other things to suggest for you. So we'll move on to the next section of the show. Welcome back. Uh, so, Brady, uh, this section of the show is meant to be a little bit more of, like, a community sort of thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick out a few songs, um, a few songs that we talked about today, and uh, then also just what we've been listening to recently. Now, as far as Troy Tate stuff goes, there's not a whole lot I can put on, like, a Spotify playlist. Mm. So I'll look, I'll look, uh, for like what Troy Tate stuff I can, and I'll make sure to put it on the playlist. Um, cause like I said, you know, you get them only occasionally in like one compilation here, like a B side there or something. I want to hear about some things that you've been listening to that you want to recommend to, uh, to listeners of this podcast. Very cool. Um, okay, this is tough because I don't know if you're a fan of the Smiths, um, you may stand beside my wife and hate all of my music preferences. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, you know, a lot of the music I listen to is um, kind of more like post post hardcore or like like rock, you know, like like heavier mm-hmm. rock stuff. But um, uh, one band that's not quite so much that way um, is uh, is a band called Lydia. L Y D I A. Um, they're actually based out of your neck of the woods down oh. in Arizona, um, and they're amazing. Um, they're v- very interesting. I I don't know. Like they're kind of like an alternative rock group, um, but they've got really creative lyrics, uh, really interesting melodic you know lines throughout their music. A lot of the music's a little bit slower, but um, man, they rock pretty hard. So definitely check out Lydia if you want to have a cool experience. Yeah, you got um, a, you got a song for us. Uh, a particular song? Yeah, oh, yeah, man. yeah. So, like, um, I, I want to make sure that you get like okay, you okay. Know, two to three songs, uh, and so I want to. Okay. I want to make sure I have one exactly to pinpoint. You're just giving me yet. one artist to share? No, no, uh, no, no. Okay, no, okay. So, um, hospital, hospital is one song that's really great. Um, another one's called "I Woke Up Near the Sea." Uh, both of those are on the Illuminate album. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really great, and if you're into just like really melodic kind of rock music it's it's really cool like definitely check it out um they're i don't they might have another album out since this one but um they have another album called run wild Mm -hmm. um and uh it's called (laughs) this one's probably not their top song it's not their top song on the album (laughs) but i really like it's called coffee drips um and it's just really chill. Like it's really cool. cool. So I don't know. Lydia, they're they're one that I listen to quite often actually. Uh, I really like their stuff. Alright. So out of the three that you singled out, is there one? You don't get just one artist. Sorry, I was saying two to three songs, like generally. Uh and what is one song from Lydia? Um I would say a hospital. hospital. Check out hospital. Alright. That one's cool. wild. It's it's really good. What yeah. else do you have for us, Brady? Um, okay, how about, oh man, my, I don't know about you, but every time I, like, somebody says, oh, what, what kind of music are you listen to? And my mind just blanks. It's like, oh man. Um, another one, these, these guys aren't, they're, they're still playing a little bit out there, but, um, one that I love and that I've loved for many, many years is Mayday Parade. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're more mainstream. 
Um, but uh, I really love I, I love everything Mayday Parade to be honest. Um, but uh, one that uh, I think their Lesson in Romantics album is probably my favorite. Um, Jamie All Over is a really good one. Um, they have long titles, right? <laughs> but Miserable I mean, at Best yeah. is an acoustic or piano piano version. That one's a little bit slow, but uh, everyone probably knows that one. Um, they put out a song, I guess it's been almost two years ago now, called Kids of Summer. That's really great. So if you love like summer anthems, that's very, very much I think what they were going for is to, to make a summer anthem song. But um, Kids of Summer is a, a really great song too. I actually like their old album, A Lesson in Romantics, when they had both of their singers mm-hmm. at the time because they just played off each other so well. And they're such good singers they're just so good and we start to miss that after that album um they lost one of their 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 lead singer and and the other guy stepped in but um he does such a great job and he's really taken that band on forward and anyway they got a cool history too but i really love them um let me give you one last band all right and, and then i'll let you go uh this is also an older older band that maybe a lot of you have heard of but a band called brand new yeah. Um, brand new and I go way back and um, ironic. I love all their stuff, but uh, I love their original album, Your Favorite Weapon. Uh, I listen to that all the time. Um, Jude Law and A Semester Abroad was one of my favorites. Uh, I really like Sudden Death in Carolina. Uh, the No Seatbelt song. <laughs> I just, I they have such good lyrics and... Um, it's kind of some of them are kind of aggressive, but if you look at their history, they've got a cool history too. If uh, you're familiar with Taking Back Sunday, mm-hmm. um, he used to sing with Taking Back Sunday, and then they had a fallout with a girl and broke off. And Brand New is basically like they 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 sing hate songs about one another actually. Gotcha. Um, but uh, <laughs> but Brand New, a lot of their music is about like aggressive kind of music about you know, the lead singer Taking Back Sunday, actually, if you go back and look at it. And it's interesting in that, the No Seatbelt song, mm-hmm. um, when he's saying, you know, I hope there's ice on all the roads and you can think of me when you forget your seatbelt. And again, <laughs> when your head goes through the windshield. And anyway, he just goes on and talks about their argument. But they're awesome. And one of the things I love, to wrap this up, my, my comments, one of the things I love, love, love about Brand New is they are really good at building the song melody lines. And so they'll have a melody line like through a chorus and then they'll have a different melody line like through a verse. And then in a lot of their songs, the tail end of their song, like the last final chorus, they'll bring in two or even three melody lines that just mm. complement each other so well. And it's just, I don't know, it's just amazing. I really, I really dig their music. So I've I'll listened to them for many years and they're still one of my favorites. Yeah, I'll be looking out yeah. for that. I have, uh, I have, well, I had, I should say, I had this one uh, uh, friend online that was just utterly obsessed with the devil and God are raging inside oh, yeah. of me. And so, like, I, <laughs> I've i heard so much from that album, but not oh, like yeah. not a whole lot of their other stuff. Their, their previous song, uh, excuse me, their previous album, Your Favorite Weapon, um, it's, it's more raw. So mm-hmm. if you listen to it, like, you'll, you'll be able to tell. It's not as polished as their later stuff, but... Um, it actually just gives it that different edge. So it, it's yeah. cool. Yeah, definitely check it out. I really love that album. All right. So I've got uh, I've got a couple to recommend as well. Let's hear it. Um, so contemporaries of the Smiths, maybe a little bit later, actually, um, over in America. I think they're from Chicago, um, is the group Material Issue. Um and they're a very like kind of power pop uh group but most fans of this group that i know are also crazy about the smiths um hmm. i would say their most popular song is probably valerie loves me and it's got like this kind of like jangly like lead guitar line for the verse and then it's just like super super overdriven uh overdriven chords for the chorus uh it works very well so valerie loves me by um by material issue and then um this one i think is more especially for uh for you brady so i am not the biggest fan of like pop punk um 
I am. Yes. I love it. I grew up with it. I love it. Um, there's some things about pop punk that I think work really, really well, and some things where I'm like, man, I, I really just need... Uh, I, I really need Fallout Boy to just stop for a <laughs> yeah. second. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, a pop punk group that I really like from Arizona is a band called Diva Bleach, and they just released a uh, a song called "Crawling" uh, about a w- probably two weeks ago. Um, but mm. very good, a lot of fun. It's got like uh, like some ta- some like good toms in it, and then the vocalist is fantastic the guitars great bass you know yeah is it It, a girl group it is a girl group yeah very cool yeah um and for my last one um let's see we'll go a little a little modern post-punk with uh dry cleaning and the song gary ashby which uh really like you know laid back uh laid back vocals very monotone while the guitar is just going like crazy playing like these very melodic uh melodic licks and the bass since it's you know modern post-punk is very very danceable but also like stilted in a way that just works for the genre really well Mm. so those will be my picks that's awesome yeah i'm excited to check them out yeah all new to me um and then, as far as mail goes, I don't think we have anything to report today, um, so we might as well just kick off. Awesome. Yeah, Brady. Any any last words you want to say to uh, to the listenership? You know what? If if this is your first time listening to the podcast, or you're new to uh, to this podcast, and maybe even new to the Smiths, um, dive in and learn the history. It's really interesting. I just preparing for this opportunity to come and share, you know, my humble opinions. Um, I've learned a lot and it's really interesting. I mean, there's a lot that I didn't realize about this group. And uh, anyway, definitely dig in. Every band's got their history. They've got their story and it's fun to learn it. But, you know, I just, I really appreciate it, Casimir. Thanks for letting me come on and, and talk and have this experience with you. It's yeah. Been great. Of course. Of course. All right. Bye everyone. Bye.